Welcome back to Instrumental, a podcast that reviews music research and gives you practical takeaways for using music in your everyday life. My name's Bria, I'm your host, I'm a music therapist, and today I'm diving into how music can positively impact your workout. We're going to learn the impact of music on your physical performance on the level of your brain and spinal cord, how music can impact your exercise routine, and I'm going to give you lots of takeaways for when to use and when to not use music when you're exercising. Keep listening to find out more. Music and movement. Maybe it's not a pairing you think of often, but as a music therapist, for me, they go together like peanut butter and jelly, macaroni and cheese, milk and cookies, cake and ice cream. And yeah, this episode is about exercising, but from this intro, you can probably guess my primary reason for showing up the gym, because I love food. Uh, (laughs) Moving on, though, as we've covered in other episodes, music can be this external timing cue for entraining our movements with others. Definitely listen to episode three if you haven't yet, um, which talks about why moving at the same times with others gets us to act more pro-socially. This episode is going to focus on music's profound impact on how we move, like this song that helped set a world record for sprinting. That song is Scatman by Scatman John and is known for being the favorite song of elite runner Haile Gabrselassie. He attributes this song for helping him set the 10,000 meter world record because he says that it has the perfect rhythm for running. What could it be about this song that might help him achieve these amazing physical feats? I can't promise that music will help you become an Olympian, but we all ideally should be making more room for exercise in our lives. We know that exercise is one of the single most helpful things we can do to stay physically and mentally healthy. But if you're anything like me, exercise isn't something that I'm excited to do. It's not the most motivating thing for me um, to do every single day in and of itself. So the big question we're asking today is, how can music positively impact our exercise routines, either by motivating us to do more of it or maybe working out more efficiently? But maybe even a more fundamental question we're starting to address in this episode is, how does music impact how we move? A lot of research we're going to cover today is from a pair of literature review articles written by Costas Georgis and David Lee Priest. Uh, These articles I thought were super well-written, super comprehensive, and if you're interested in taking a deeper dive into this topic, uh, because we only have so much time right now, I definitely recommend you go look them up in the reference of our show notes. Today we're going to focus on two categories of studies that were included in this literature review. First, the impact of asynchronous music on exercise, and then the impact of synchronous music on exercise. Starting off, what is asynchronous music in the context of exercise research? 
It refers to when you're working out and there happens to be music on in the background, but you don't make any conscious effort to align your movements with the music's beat. Like, if your gym plays music in the background, but you're not consciously trying to use the music to impact how you're moving or your exercise routine. So what does the research say? For low to moderate intensity exercise, there's evidence that how hard you think you're working or your rating of perceived exertion is about 10% lower if you're listening to music than if there's no music on in the background. For higher intensity workout levels, music can increase your endurance, but it may not have a strong impact on how you rate your exertion. Also, when listening to any kind of music, you may also rate your feelings while exercising more positively, but there are conflicting results between studies about how strong of an effect music has on your feelings when you're exercising. Granted, I'm summarizing an entire literature review here, so again, go, to, go get the full story, check out this article in the show notes for yourself. For me, it's more interesting to discuss why music might be responsible for these results. First, music can change your psychomotor arousal levels, which just refers to your body feeling alert and energized. Music can act as either a stimulant and get you pumped up and raise your energy levels, or music can act as a sedative, like when you listen to music to help you relax or put you to sleep. When you're working out, you probably want to raise your arousal levels, so when you listen to fast or loud music, you're waking up a part of your brain called the brainstem that puts the rest of your body on alert. Which leads us to the second reason music may impact your exercising. Music can change what you're actually paying attention to. The sensory information that your body sends up to our brains has a large but limited capacity. So it's theorized that listening to music can narrow our attention and reduce the sensation of fatigue that's coming from our bodies, especially when we're just starting out to exercise and those fatigue signals are relatively weak. And finally, if you're listening to music you enjoy, there's a pretty good chance the music is going to put you into a positive mood when you're exercising, and that will motivate you to keep doing more of it. That was a very quick summary of the impact of asynchronous music during exercise. Now let's get into the second category of research we're looking at, which involves the synchronous application of music to exercise, especially with movements that are repetitive and are done over and over again, like running or cycling. In music therapy, we refer to the synchronicity as rhythmic entrainment. Either term just refers to aligning someone's movements with a repetitive timing cue via music, like a metronome or the beat of a song. Let's take a quick detour and talk about the basics of why music is such an effective cue for movement entrainment. First, we're going to your spinal cord, which is part of your nervous system. The spinal cord connects neurons in your brain that send out motor instructions to your muscles and also brings sensory information from the environment up to the neurons into your brain for higher level processing. So the spinal cord is responsible for exchanging lots of information between your brain and your body. And most of the neurons in your spinal cord are called interneurons. These interneurons facilitate all this communication between the sensory neurons, the motor neurons, and with other interneurons. Now, if you take a group or circuit of these interneurons that work together, this is something called a central pattern generator. There's a few things you need to know about central pattern generators, or CPGs. First, CPGs are responsible for regulating rhythmic movements. 
And if you think about it, repetitive movements like walking or dancing are innately rhythmic. There's a predictable movement pattern that repeats itself. When you're doing a repetitive movement, it's like you're creating a rhythm with your body. So even if you don't think you have rhythm, which I've heard a lot of people say as a music therapist, uh, that's not the case. You totally have rhythm, if only in your CPGs. Another thing you need to know about CPGs is that they are very sensitive to information coming in from the world around you. Remember, CPGs are circuits of inner neurons that are exchanging information in your spinal cord, so the regulation of CPGs is partly due to whatever your senses are perceiving. And what is the highly influential, organized in time, sensory and auditory input that this podcast is all about? Ding, 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 ding! Yes, music! (laughs) Hearing music, or even just a rhythm, can influence how you move. Almost like music is this external magnetic force that your body wants to line up with. Have you ever had the experience where you're walking down a hall and you hear someone walking behind you and all of a sudden you want to line up with the tempo they're setting, especially if they're wearing high heels? You can blame your central pattern generators for this urge you might feel to entrain your steps because your inner neurons perceive that rhythm and are trying to influence your own legs to fall in line. It's through CPGs that music has a really powerful impact on how we move, especially when organizing our movements into repetitive rhythms. Oh, and one more really quick tidbit. All this exchange of information between a rhythm you hear and your muscles in training is happening without input from your brain. It's all happening below conscious awareness, and this has some really, really cool implications for music therapy that I'll get into a little later. And that's just what's happening in your spinal cord. There are lots of areas in your cerebral cortex of your brain that are responsible for higher-level functions that process both music and movement in even more complex ways. Let's talk about something called the auditory-motor coupling. This refers to the fact that movements can have a direct relationship with auditory information you hear. Many auditory and motor areas of your brain are directly interacting with each other. They're communicating, they're influencing each other, rather than just working separately or in parallel. Some brain structures that are responsible for planned and conscious movement are the same structures that perceive rhythm. For example, there's the premotor cortex in your frontal lobe. This area stores movement patterns for muscle groups to perform specific tasks. There's the supplementary motor area, also in your frontal lobe. This helps plan more complex tasks or movements involving both of your hands. There's the cerebellum that controls the timing of your movements, and it stores really well-learned, almost over-learned movement patterns. All of these brain areas are activated. These brain structures pay attention when you hear a rhythmic sequence, but not when you hear random sequences of sound. This is the auditory-motor coupling. Hearing rhythm can prime or prepare your brain to send out movement instructions and may even influence how that movement is carried out. Oh my gosh, I realize I've been talking your ear off explaining just how music and movement are so closely intertwined in our brain, and we haven't even gotten to the research findings about exercise. But I think it's pretty important and pretty cool, to be honest, to understand exactly how music is operating with your central nervous system, and I guess I hope you do too. 
All right, back to the Kara Georges and Priest literature review. So what happens when you're exercising and you consciously align your movements with the music, which I've been calling rhythmic entrainment? The researchers referred to this as in-task synchronous use of music. Again, you're going to be the most successful with this synchronous entrainment when your movements are already repetitive, like walking or running or cycling. Many studies indicate that entrainment improves your physical performance, like running faster when you step in time with music, kind of like the music is helping you keep pace more efficiently. Lining up your steps with music actually helps your muscles activate and deactivate more precisely, which leads to more efficient muscle movements and minimizes you putting out extraneous energy. So, musical entrainment can help us move more efficiently, but can it also have special motivational qualities? A study led by Kara Georges, this is the same author as our literature review, but I'm also including a study he did in 2009. This study looked at whether synchronizing your steps when you walk helps your physical performance and whether there are special motivational aspects to the music you listen to. In this experiment, there were 30 young adult participants who participated in some kind of running-based sport like rugby or soccer, and this was meant to control so that everyone had the same basic level of fitness. These participants walked on a treadmill at 6 kilometers an hour, which is about 3.7 miles an hour for us in the United States, and the treadmill was set at about a 12% incline. Participants heard one of three auditory conditions, either no music, and this was the control condition. The second auditory condition were pop or rock songs that were rated as low in motivational qualities. And the third were pop or rock songs that were rated as very high in motivational qualities. And just so you know, these motivational qualities of the music had been decided upon in a previous study. If a participant was listening to music, they were instructed to step in time to the music, which had a tempo of 125 beats per minute. The participants also verbally reported their perceived exertion level and how they were feeling every two minutes. Then, participants were timed on how long they walked until they reported that they felt exhausted and could not walk any longer. Results found that participants who heard either music condition walked for longer, meaning that they had more endurance than the participants who did not hear any music. But then, the people who heard the high motivational music had significantly more endurance than the people who heard the low motivational music. This high motivation music group also had higher ratings of how they were feeling during the walking task than the other two groups. So, what can we learn from this? This all suggests that when we're doing repetitive exercises like walking, it's better if we, we're going to have a better experience and exercise with more endurance if we're listening to music that we can entrain to, but also that we enjoy and prefer, which may motivate us to keep going. Of all the places I've worked, I think neurorehabilitation is the place where music's power to organize our movements efficiently and motivate our movements is needed the most. 
In neurorehabilitation, many of the clients have recently experienced a major life-changing event like a stroke or maybe a traumatic brain injury after a car accident. These patients often have trouble with functional movements like feeding themselves or walking, things that were so simple for all of us and for them previous to their accident. Music therapists who work in neurorehabilitation use this knowledge of the auditory motor pathway every day and a clinical specialty that focuses on the brain and brain plasticity at front and center is called neurologic music therapy. This approach is defined by the therapeutic application of music to cognitive, sensory, language, and motor dysfunctions that arise when there's damage to the human nervous system. For this approach, the underlying mechanism that explains music's positive and therapeutic impact is how music is operating on the brain. NNT features a bunch of therapeutic protocols that use what we've learned in this episode about music and movement. There's one technique called Rhythmic Auditory Stimulation, or RAS, that I want to tell you about. It focuses on gait training, which essentially just means um, helping people regulate their walking patterns. RAS is used with different types of clinical populations, so maybe a Parkinson's disease patient who shuffles and needs to have a larger stride length, or a stroke patient who may have weakness on one side of their body and needs to make their walking patterns more smooth and fluid. When facilitating RAS, the music therapist is usually playing a drum or maybe another type of instrument called an auto harp. Uh, I guess if you don't know what an auto harp is, it's kind of hard to explain over a podcast, but it's got like a backboard, it's got a bunch of strings, there are some buttons you push down uh, so that certain chords are played with combinations of the strings. Um, you, Dolly Parton plays an auto harp, maybe you've seen her play one, and certainly if it's good enough for Dolly, it's good enough for music therapy, so... Anyway, the the music therapist is standing in front of the patient playing live music at an appropriate tempo to help reset the client's central pattern generators. As the client walks down the hall, the music therapist keeps walking backward to the beat, but still ahead of the patient. So essentially, the music therapist is providing auditory and visual cues to guide the patient's walking. Usually, RAS also involves a physical therapist who is the expert in movement so they can provide real-time feedback to the patient and to the music therapist to maximize those musical walking cues. And remember, music's impact on CPGs operates on the level of the spinal cord without needing conscious input. So walking to a musical beat with RAS hopefully is less cognitively tiring for the patient and more automatic. I hope you or one of your loved ones never actually has to experience rhythmic auditory stimulation, so let's segue into some more practical takeaways for the average exerciser. Again, I love this Kara George's and Priest Lit Review article because it outlines some really clear tips for how to harness music and get the most out of your workout. First, know that you are the best person to select music for when you're exercising. You are the best curator for choosing music to match today's energy level, your preferences, knowing what's going to motivate you for this specific day or exercise routine. If you're listening and you're a coach or a teacher or someone who's choosing music for a group of people to listen to while training, you may want to survey your team and ask them what music would motivate them. 
When selecting music for a workout, you do want to keep a few things in mind. Generally speaking, listening to music is going to help distract you from your body's fatigue signs during the beginning of your workout. The longer you're exercising, the less effective music is going to be in helping out, helping you ignore those signs of fatigue. So if you're only going to listen to music for one portion of your workout, you may want to do those exercises first. If you're planning on synchronizing your movements to music, you do want to be thoughtful, of course, of the speed. And if you have Spotify, there are a bunch of playlists in the running category that are organized according to how many beats per minute or how fast the song is if you want to use music, especially curated for a run. You also want to think about the general shape of the exercise you're doing along to the music. A really obvious example if you're running, which is a bipedal movement because we've got two legs, not three legs. Uh, So you want to have a meter to the music or the beats of the music should be organized into groups of two or four if you're running. I guess, and there are a lot of other movements that fit in well with a duple meter like bicep curls or squats because those are just basically up-down movements. And to drive home the importance of fitting a movement shape to a musical meter, I want to tell you a story from college. I had a roommate who was in the college pep band, and for community service, the band was playing along the route of a 5K run that the university had put on. And most of the time, the band was playing music to motivate and support the runners, but sometimes the pep band leader would play this subliminal musical prank. Every once in a while, the band would play the Mission Impossible theme song, and we're going to play a clip. I want you to try and figure out the number of beats that the meter is grouped into. theme has a meter where the beats are organized into groups of five and five is a really odd number to run to and it's also a very uncommon meter in western music this meter definitely did not fit in well for organizing a bipedal movement like running because five is not divisible by two the whole band got a kick out of watching the runners who would try and entrain their running to this weird meter and get really confused by it who says band kids don't have fun Some other practical takeaways, you don't have to just use music when you're doing the actual work of your workout. You might want to use it before you start exercising to prime or prepare your body for all of the energy it's about to exert. So maybe driving over to the gym, you might listen to faster, more upbeat music so that your arousal levels are up when you arrive and you're ready to hit the ground running. Or remember that you can strategically listen to music after your workout, during your cool down to start that mental and physical revitalization process. So maybe you might put on some quieter, more relaxing music you enjoy while you're doing your post-workout stretch as a musical reward for all that hard work you've done and start bringing your heart rate down. On the flip side, what type of music should you not use when working out? 
Well, right from the start, you don't want to listen to music if you need to be focusing on your environment around you for safety reasons. So if you're doing a bike ride on service streets, don't listen to music that's distracting you from being aware of the vehicles around you. Or if you're running somewhere dark or in an isolated place, make sure that you can hear what's going on around you. So just listen with maybe one earbud in, ideally not listening to music at all, so that you can be aware if someone's trying to sneak up on you. Safety comes first. Another time that music can be distracting is if you're trying to do a really difficult physical movement like lifting a really, really heavy weight that could result in injuries, so don't listen to music then. Your attention needs to be on what your body's doing. Also, be sure to check in with your body when you're listening to music. We've learned that music can distract us from fatigue, but we don't want to push our bodies past our limits. Take a break when you need to take a break. And also, if you're listening or working out in a really noisy environment, I know my gym gets so busy like around 5 o'clock when everyone's getting off work and all the machines seem to be on, make sure you're not cranking up your music's volume to an unhealthy level to drown out the noises of the treadmills next to you. Listening to overly loud music for extended periods of time can lead to hearing loss, which is permanent. You only have two ears, and they have got to last, so make sure you protect your hearing. I feel like this episode is giving you just as many takeaways of when not to use music when exercising, but here's one more. Consider mixing up the song repertoire you listen to while exercising. If you listen to the same handful of songs over and over again, you can become conditioned to associate those songs with physical fatigue. Like, I used to listen to Love Shack by the B-52s all the time when I was running because I found it really motivating, and now that song is really annoying to me. Uh, Not that Love Shack's, like, my favorite song of all time, but if you're listening to your favorite songs trying to motivate yourself when you're exercising, there's a chance those songs can take on associations that you may or may not want. Or along the same idea, if you're training for a marathon or some other long-distance event, it's okay to train with music, but you may want to work in a few training sessions where you don't listen to music so that your body doesn't become dependent on using the music as a stimulus, especially if you won't be able to listen to recorded music on the big day. Let's quickly review what we learned today. That was a lot of information. Music can make exercising feel less awful and may even boost your performance if used strategically. If you're an overachiever, that means that you can work out for longer. For me, that just means I can go home sooner because I've worked out more efficiently. The biggest benefits are when you entrain or synchronize your movements to the beat of the music and when that music is motivating to you on a personal level. Thanks for listening to our fifth episode. We covered a lot. We are halfway through season one of Instrumental. We've got fresh new episodes coming out on the next five Fridays. Check out more information about the research articles and music we covered at our website, instrumentalpodcast.com. Please follow us on Twitter, at InstrumentalPod, so that you can stay in the loop with the latest news and updates. And I'll see you next time.